our team that is here serving and for the, the staff of this place um, as any of you uh, that are guests, but I am uh, extremely honored to get to share with you guys uh, this afternoon. So this is my first time to Dubai. Thank you very much. I got in at midnight last night, and so my body still thinks it's like uh, the middle of, I guess it were nine hours behind you guys. So I'm just waking up right now in the United States. And, um, and I'm just excited to just get to share because even flying in on the plane and just seeing the lights of the city last night, I just sense such an incredible purpose over, over the city of Dubai. And I sense the pleasure of the heart of God that there are many churches in Dubai, there are many believers, but there are far more that don't know Jesus, right? And far more that are, are, are essentially worshiping at the idols of false gods. And we get to worship the one true and living God in the midst of a dark, a dark place and to set up an altar. Um, and, you know, altars are ultimately not what are pleasing to the Lord. It's the sacrifice that goes on the altar, right? And the altar is the place of consecration. It is the place of sacrifice, but it is not the sacrifice itself. And as you guys have dedicated this place, this house of prayer in the past few weeks, you guys have prepared an altar, okay? But an altar without a sacrifice is just a monument to what could be, right? But not what ultimately God is looking for, which is the sacrifice of living sacrifices, like Romans 12 said, we offer our lives unto God in that manner. And I, I just remember um, as a young 20-year-old, someone saying, there's a place that you can go where they worship night and day, right? And I was in college at the time in Atlanta, and I went to this, this place, they called it the Prayer Room, International House of Prayer, and I wander in in the middle of the night. Little did I know I would spend a lot of time in that room in the middle of the night in the years to come. But I go for the first time, and I was kind of on a college schedule, which means you study like midnight to 2 a.m. the night before your exam, right? So I figure what better place to go than a place where I could just pray periodically, go, oh, Jesus, please help me pass this exam, <laughs> right? And so I go to the house of, of God to study, and I just remember that um, it was so powerful because we would go in and there would be a person worshiping like Kevin just led us in worship with just a pure and undefiled heart before the Lord and offering beautiful uh, incense of worship before God. And I, I remember sensing, man, there's more of God's presence in this room than there are people, right? There's more of the activity of angels in this place than there are people here. But the reality is that, that um, where there's a, a heart that's offering itself as a sacrifice, as an incense before the Lord, a heart that's burning for God. God's presence comes and rests and confirms that sacrifice, right? And seeing the city of Dubai, seeing some of the, the worship of mammon that is in this city, seeing the, you know, the, the call to prayer, the worship of a, of a false god in this place, and then to walk in here and see how God has prepared an altar for himself. And it's the same kind of place that I walked into as a young 20-year-old and got ruined for the presence of God. And just say, God, if your presence is here, that's where I want to be. Um, and so it's such a powerful and beautiful thing that this place exists and that those who are here, some of you take prayer watches, some of you come in here and intercede, some of you come in here and worship throughout your week and you're part of uh, building a fragrance that is ascending before the throne of God that is gonna bring God's favor and mercy to this city. So I just want to encourage you, what you're doing is unique in the earth. It's precious in the sight of God. It's different than what any other place is doing um, because you are, you're building ultimately a house that has a vision to night and day in an unceasing way offer incense before the throne of God. And that's just an amazing vision. 
um, and I believe God is going to favor and bless that effort. Amen? So I want to tell you just a little more about myself. I, let me see if I can flip this around. So that's my beautiful family right there. I have four precious children, three girls, and, uh, and there's my little guy, my boy. He's my youngest, the little bow tie there. He's pretty cute. And my lovely wife. And so Hannah is my wife, and uh, Amrin, Amrin is my, my oldest daughter. The Lord actually spoke to us, and, and we gave her an Arabic name. He spoke to us in a dream, and her name means moon. And it was right when we were in that season of going into the night watch. And the dream was actually a confirmation that we were to spend the earliest years of her life serving the Lord in the house of prayer, um, praying in the night hours, but especially praying for Muslim peoples in the night hours. And so the, place, the fact that this place exists, um, and I believe that there's going to be even uh, greater things that God has for her and for our family among Muslim peoples, but she's a sign, she was a sign, right, that God is raising up prayer and worship at the time of day when there was no call to prayer, there's no call to prayer through the night watches. He was raising up people who would intercede for the Muslim people, a house of prayer, a house of God that will contend. And, and so that was a, a precious thing. So that's my oldest daughter, Kesed, which her name is a Hebrew word. Um, it means loyal love or the fidelity, fidelity of God and the covenantal mercy of God. And then Pearl, which is my pearl of great price. She's my precious one, and she's going to be a, a mighty evangelist in word and deed. And then my son, Elisha, who's my double portion son. So, so that's, that's a little bit about uh, my family. And, uh, and it's exciting times uh, to be alive. The truth is that we are closer to the hour of the Lord's return than we ever have been in human history. I believe the signs of the end of the age are increasing in the earth, but as great darkness increases, a greater glory is going to rest upon God's church. And God is releasing signs and wonders. You know, it's not something that happens very, very common in my ministry, but occasionally there'll be an unusual sign um, or a wonder that, that points or confirms a prophetic word. And I just want to share one with you guys from this past week. We did a, a training seminar on the gift of prophecy at our house of prayer. And one of the teaching points is I talked about the mystery of God, and I gave some examples of of how either I've had to do some foolish things or in the Bible, things that seem naturally foolish and weak, but how oftentimes God will anoint those foolish or unusual things. And I remember standing in the back of our room and, and at the house of prayer, listening to the person teaching before me, and I just had this faint impression there were some earplugs there, and I felt like the Lord said, I'm going to be unplugging people's ears in the spirit and giving them the ability to hear. And I want you to actually, it's all right if we need to switch, just let me know, brother. Mike. Okay. So no worries. So as I was saying, um, I might trip over it, though. I'm going to, like, dance with the microphone. <laughs> so as I was saying that I felt like the Lord told me to put these earplugs in and then unstop them, like pull them out as a, as a physical prophetic act and just prophesy that God's ears were going to be unplugged. I'm like that's a little silly. Can't I just give the word? Do I have to do, do I have to put earplugs in and pull them out? But I sense this impression like that is what I want you to do. And so when I got up there, I just said, hey, this is an example of what I just taught. Sometimes God asks us to do things, even physical things that are strange or unusual. I mean, I, I believe it was Isaiah. He had to like build or it was Isaiah or Ezekiel had to build a model city, you know, that what and, and act out the siege of Jerusalem. Like there's strange things that sometimes God invites us to do in obedience, but they actually release God's kingdom power when we make ourselves like little children 
willing to obey the voice of our Father despite how our rational mind might declare something to be foolishness, right? Because God has made in the gospel the, foolishness, the wisdom of this age as, as foolishness and the foolish things, he's, he's released power upon them. I mean, we see the picture of a, a beaten and bludgeoned uh, Messiah crowned with thorns and that, that, was, that was the salvation of all humanity, right? This is the foolishness that we find in the gospel. So I do, so I tell everybody, God's got to unstop ears and I put the little orange earplugs in and I pull them out. And as, as I was doing the prophetic act, the Lord said, I'm going to release a sign. And he just speaks to my spirit. People ringing in people's ear, tinnitus, where people have ringing in their ears, it's going to stop as, as you do this. And so I pull the earplugs out. I say, if you have ringing in your ears, but the Lord said, that's going to stop. And, um, and I just prophesy that. And then I carry on with prayer. And then we go into break. And this lady walks up to me and she says, I've had ringing in my ears for over 30 years. She said, when you pulled the earplugs out of your out of your ears, she said the ringing in my ears stopped in that moment. As she gets up and shares the testimony, another woman covers her ears and she raises her hand and says, I actually checked my hearing while she was sharing the testimony. She goes, the ringing in my ears stopped as well. And the, the healing is pretty cool, okay? But we talk about God releasing signs and wonders and that was just a little sign. We have to recognize that the healing was actually intended to point to, to, to and confirm a real prophetic word, right? It was actually a sign or a wonder that was pointing to something that God's doing. And I don't believe it was just for Christians in that room. I believe the testimony of that is actually something that God wants me to share lots of places where we minister, where I speak. And I believe this is something that God is doing in this season. And this is the only place I felt prompted to share that testimony. I actually think for people in this room, God wants, God wants to open up our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in an unprecedented way. And you see over and over and over again uh, in the book of Revelation, it says, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, right? And in this last, last days before the return of the Lord, it's going to be incumbent upon us in a, even a greater measure to live lives that are inclined towards hearing God's voice, right? It's not enough just to know his word, and his word is always in sync with his voice, but we actually have to have a capacity to hear the instruction of the Lord, just like the story I just heard, to be, to be willing to get the faint impression and to obey that impression in a way that releases God's power. Amen? And so what I want to pray over you guys, even as we begin today, is that you would hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church in Dubai. That there is actually a word in this, not just for the house of prayer in the city, but God does nothing in the earth that says in Amos, lest he speaks to his friends, the prophets, right? And that you all are a prophetic people that are going to hear something in the secret place and then convey it back to God, and that's prayer, right? And when we convey it back to God, it releases power in the earth, okay? And I just want to encourage you guys today that uh, even as I get ready to pray over you, God is not just looking, prayer is not just about talking to God, it's as much about talking to God as it is about listening to God. And I think what God's hungry for is not people that will, will talk all the time to him, but people that will actually listen and respond to his voice, amen? So let's ask for that even in this time. Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit, the blessed spirit of wisdom and revelation, and we honor you in this place, the, the person of the Holy Spirit, and we say, we want to be those that hear his voice and respond. Lord, I pray in this room, unstop ears, even in this moment right now. Father, I pray, cleanse the ear and the eye gates so that we can see and hear what you're doing. Jesus in John 5 says, I do nothing lest I see what the Father does. And we know that this is our place of strength to abide in you, to observe what you're doing, the movements of your spirit, and to respond. 
So God, let us be found here a watching and waiting bride, a responsive bride, one who hears you, listens to you, and leans in. God, I pray courage even as I'm sharing to lean into the invitation of this message. I pray that you would give me prophetic insight even to share with individuals in this room. I pray we would be hungry to hear the voice of the bridegroom. Not just direction and instruction, but affirmation. Affirmation of identity and calling. Affirmation that we are the beloved sons and daughters, that we are the beloved bride. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Even as I was praying, I was just sensing something forward, so I'll share that before I even get into the notes. And that is that some in this room have been praying, God, give me direction, right? God, give me instruction. God, lead me. And God wants to tell you who you are before he wants to tell you what to go do. And I just feel like there's even been some frustration where it's like you're going, God, show me what to do. And he says, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And you're like, that's that's, you're not telling me what to do, God. If you love me, tell me what to do. And he's like, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And I'm telling you, he wants you to be more about the being with him than the doing for him. And if you will tune into, if you will tune into where God wants to tell you about who you are to be in him, out of that, I don't think you'll have to even have him tell you what to do. You'll know what to do. Right? You'll know what to do. When you're rooted in who you are in him, what we're to do just flows naturally out of that place of carrying his heart. Amen. So, Father, release that to us even in this time. Tell us who we are to be as a people in Jesus' name. How many here are familiar with the name Jonathan? I'm sorry, familiar with the name Charles Finney? Okay, handful. All right, how many are familiar with the name Evan Roberts? Okay, handful. So these are two famous revivalists. I'm not going to give you the full biographical sketches for these revivalists. I'm just going to tell you stories. But you can go and find great books on Amazon about these mighty men uh, of God. And I have a whole class that I've taught before in historic revivals. And it just encourages me a lot of times to read the historical accounts and then look at the parallels in Scripture and then look at what God is saying in this present hour because I believe he's raising up men and women exactly uh, in the likeness of, of ones like Charles Finney and Jonathan Edwards and Evan Roberts and Mariah Woodworth Edder and many others. And so these are just amazing stories. Let them let the, uh, the spirit of prophecy, it says, is the testimony of Jesus, right? Which means it's the story. When we prophesy, we're telling the story of what Jesus is doing. And I believe testimonies oftentimes, they carry the seeds of the future move of God, right? When they fall upon soft hearts, hearts that are full of faith, and they say, what God did then, he'll do again. Okay, so that's these stories are to encourage faith, and then I'll I'll draw a point, um, about and I call this message the vow of unusual dedication. Okay, so Charles Finney starting there, he says I once preached for the first time in a mill town. The next morning, I went into a manufacturing establishment to view its operations. As I passed into the weaving department, I saw a large group of young women, some of whom I observed were looking at me and then at each other in a manner that indicated a frivolous spirit and that showed that they knew me. So because the preacher had come into the place that they were working, they're all kind of laughing and giggling at him and mocking him a little bit. And he says, he knew none of them. As I approached near those who recognized me, they seemed to become more silly and giddy. Their levity made a peculiar impression on me, and I felt it in my heart. I stopped short and looked at them with what expression I do not know, 
because my whole mind was absorbed with a sense of their guilt and danger. So here are these girls kind of mocking the preacher, and he comes to them, and he's so filled with concern. He doesn't know quite what the expression was on his face, but he, he had a sense of deep concern for their souls. He says, as I steadily looked on them, I observed that one of them became very much agitated. A thread broke. She attempted to mend it, but her hands trembled in such a manner she could not do it. I immediately observed the sensation was spreading and become universal among the group. I looked steadily at them, one after another, until all gave up and paid no attention to their looms. They fell on their knees, and the influence of conviction spread around the whole room. This was, that was without Charles Finney ever having uttered a word. Simply the presence of conviction resting upon the man of God. Right. And they actually it, business stops in the entirety of the mill and they actually have to move everybody separate where preaching can happen in order for them to get free of the conviction that was being carried by the spirit of God. And here's he's describing that a little further. I'd not spoken a word. The noise of the looms would have prevented me from even having been heard. In a few minutes, all the work was abandoned. Tears and lamentations filled the room. The work of the mill then halted and a space was prepared where he could preach and pray with those under conviction. The word was with power. Many expressed hope in Christ that day. Within a few days, as I was informed, nearly every person in that great establishment, together with the owner, had hope in Christ. This is from his book called Power from on High. Let us consider what Charles Finney said about these phenomenon. He said, this power seems to sometimes pervade the atmosphere of one who's highly charged with it. Many times great numbers of people in a community are clothed with this power. And a very great atmosphere of the whole place seems to be charged with the life of God. Strangers coming into it and passing through the place are instantly struck with the conviction of sin and in many instances converted to Christ. And I've experienced this even at the house of prayer in a smaller measure where there's such an, a saturation of the atmosphere of the presence of God that people walk in and, and they, they weep because of the conviction, because of the sense of the nearness of God, because they feel convicted in the presence of a holy God. That peace that comes that, to people who are agitated or uh, are restless when you create an atmosphere that's permeated with the Spirit of God because worship and prayer fills a house or fills a person. Charles Finney said, when Christians humble themselves and consecrate, they're all afresh to Christ and ask for this power. They will often receive such a baptism that they will be instrumental in converting more souls in one day than in all their lifetime before. Oh, we need a baptism of, of that kind. <laughs> While Christians remain humble enough to retain this power, the work of conversion will go on until whole communities and regions of the country are converted to Christ. The same is true of ministers and laity alike. We need a vision for what God did in the days of Pentecost to be done again, and he's done it throughout history. He's visited in different times when people will consecrate themselves and communities will consecrate themselves in their entirety until a fresh outpouring. I've tasted a measure of this in my life, and I'm committing to it again afresh, even before you all, that we would live lives that are so committed, uh, deeply committed to carrying the presence of God and to spiritual family and spiritual community that has the presence of God at its center so that people are not responding to uh, our... our Paul said it. We can be, as preachers, as good communicators, there's a lot of power in human persuasion, right? We see that in motivational speakers. We see that in coaches and in politicians. I mean, you can be very persuasive as a human being. And then sometimes the natural gift of persuasion will even carry a demonic anointing that is even more 
persuasive, and you see that with, with people like Adolf Hitler and others that carried this demonic influence of persuasion, right? But human persuasion, even demonic persuasion, has limitations. And what we need is the influence of the Spirit of God upon our lives in such a way that is not men, it's not the preaching of the gospel with persuasive words of human wisdom, but with demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. So that like when Charles Finney looks at someone, the conviction of God comes upon them because there's a presence that overshadows him. Right? How are we going to get that? It's not through us improving our techniques as preachers. Though we should be skillful evangelists and skillful communicators, and I'm all for skill, but persuasiveness and technique benefits us nothing if there's not power from on high. And there's only one way that I believe the Bible says we get power from heaven, and that is a full consecration of our lives and a, and a dedication to the place of prayer and worship. That we actually minister to God in the same way that they ministered to him in the upper room. We minister to God in the same way that they ministered to him in Acts chapter 4, where it says the very room where they were assembled together, where they had prayed, was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We minister to them the exact same way that they ministered in Acts 16 and 17, where they're fasting and praying, and the Holy Spirit speaks and set, up, set apart to me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to, right? We see dedicated communities of prayer and fasting is what results in apostolic power and sending. I believe God has set apart apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, uh, pastors for this city, for the city of Dubai. But there will not be a release of that commissioning until praying and fasting communities get a breakthrough into heaven. Evan Roberts, he was a man possessed with this. And Kevin told me this was about a four-hour meeting. That's right, isn't it? I'm just just kidding. (laughs) A couple people were, like, looking nervously at each other. So... No, I'm not going to go that long, but I do, I do have some other good stories for you guys, so just bear with me, okay? Um, Evan Roberts, okay, in the Welsh Revival, 1778 was when he was born, 1951. He was 26 years old. That's, uh, I'm 35 now, so a relatively young person. Who in here is under the age of, of 30? Just curious. Okay, so imagine, you know, you're never too, too young to be used mightily for God. So the Welsh Revival begins in late 1904 under the leadership of Evan Roberts. At the time of the Revival break, outbreak, he was 26-year-old, and he was, uh, the Revival lasted less than a year, but in that period, 100,000 converts were made. The movement spread to Scotland and England, and with estimates that over a million people were converted in Britain. Evan Roberts was born a Welsh Calvinist Methodist family in I don't even know how to say this properly. I wish I had a Welsh accent. Lou- louder on Glamamorgan. <laughs> The Carmarthenshire border. (laughs) As a boy, he was unusually serious and very diligent in his Christian life. He memorized verses of the Bible daily and attended a place called Moriah Chapel. He later wrote, I said to myself, I will have the spirit. And though all weathers and in spite of all difficulties, I went to the meetings for 10 or 11 years. I have prayed for revival. I could sit up at night and read books and talk about revival. It was the spirit who moved me to think about revival. And after working in the coal mines and then as a smithy, which I suppose is a blacksmith. He entered a preparatory college at Newcastle, a candidate for ministry. It was 1903, and he was 25. At this time, he had sought the Lord for more of the Spirit. He believed he would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and sometimes um, in his bed, sometimes his bed shook as his prayers were answered. The Lord began to wake him up at 1 a.m. for divine fellowship, and he would pray for hours, returning to bed at 5 a.m. for another few hours of sleep. 
So he had prayed for 10 years, and then the Lord begins to pour out his spirit upon him. And in the night watches, I love that as a person who served in the middle of the night. At the night watches, the Lord would wake him up, and he would intercede, and he would literally be manifesting. The spirit of God would just shake him as he came down with him in power in the, in the night watches, and then he would have to sleep an additional four hours. And this period was about three months as he had this divine encounter um, with the Lord in this season and coming. And he was never used mightily of God during that three-month season. It was just a season of encounter in the secret place. But coming out of that season, whenever he would begin to gather uh, for prayer meetings, multitudes would come because of the manifest presence of God that rested on him. And it was mostly prayer and worship. They called it a, 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 a singing revival because what would happen is the power of God would come down in waves as they would testify and as they would sing. This, the following is Evan Roberts' personal testimony of encounter he had with God that prepared him to lead the Welsh revival. For 13 years, I prayed for the Spirit, and this is the way I was led to pray. William Davies, the deacon, said one night in the society, remember to be faithful in prayer. What if the Spirit descended and you were absent? Remember Thomas, because Thomas was the disciple that was absent when Jesus appeared to them in the inner room. He said, what a loss, he said. And I said to myself, I will have the Spirit. And from that point on, he determined never to miss a prayer meeting. Right now, I think we have to be led of the spirit of God. OK, and obviously, I think Evan Roberts was uh, extremely zealous and led um, at times by the spirit of God. And we just have to hear the dedication that God is asking for us in our lives. And we have to respond with obedience, you know, and I think sometimes we, we need to be cautious to not be over religious and have a view of God that's condemning if somehow we we don't fulfill what we what we uh, think is required of us. So I think I would caution those words with a word that says, you know, we, want, we don't want to develop a religious mentality that thinks, okay, because I'm willing to pray for hours, that means God has to answer in these ways, right? But on the flip side, I think oftentimes we're way too dismissive um, of, of the need for unusual dedication, right? And I think oftentimes what we want is uh, unusual manifestations of God's power and if we want the unusual manifestation of God's power, I think it requires unusual dedication, right? And I remember just the Lord speaking that to me. He goes, you, you know, from the book of um, Malachi, the Lord speaks and says, why don't you just shut the temple down? Because all you're bringing to me are lame and blind sacrifices. And he goes, you're bringing me sacrifices that essentially don't, don't cost you anything. You're bringing me the worst of, of what you can offer, um, and I would rather not have any sacrifice at all than something. And he goes, would you bring a natural king, this offering? I mean, the Lord's speaking to the nation of Israel and Malachi. And I just think there is a, a principle that we as a people, we want to offer God our very best, right? It says in the book of Proverbs, if you offer the Lord the first fruits, the very best of your harvest, right? Then he says, everything that you're going to have is going to be blessed with abundance, so Evan Roberts, who says, through all weather and in spite of all difficulties, went to the meetings. He went to the prayer meetings, beloved. He went to the prayer meetings. It wasn't enough just to have a life of prayer alone. He, he committed to the corporate gathering. And many times, and I, you know, I see in, in Kevin and Barbara holding down the house of prayer here without a team, five, you know, five plus years here and at different times, different numbers of people, but you guys continue faithfully in all circumstances to live a life of prayer and even gather corporately, whether there are a lot of people or a few people, and I believe God will be faithful to reward your dedication 
to him with unusual manifestations of his presence and power. I, I like this because it just shows a natural picture. It says, many times, Evan Roberts, on seeing other boys playing on the boats with the tide. There's a place where they would go out and there would be boats in the ocean and there were other young men. He said, I was tempted to turn back and to join them. But no, I said to myself, remember your resolve to be faithful. And I went on, you know. He was committed to what he felt God had called him to do. Prayer meetings, Monday evenings in the chapel. Prayer meetings, Tuesday evening at Piswit. Church meetings, Wednesday evening. The Band of Hope Thursday, class Friday evenings. To these I went faithfully throughout the years. For 10 or 11 years I have prayed for a revival. And I could sit up at night and talk about revivals. It was the spirit that moved me. One Friday night last spring, when praying by my bedside before retiring, I was taken up to a great expanse, he writes. Without time and space, I was in communion with God. Before this, far off, God had been to me. And I was frightened that night, but never since. So great was my shivering. I rocked the bed, and my brother being awakened took hold of me, thinking I was ill. After that experience, I was awakened every night a little after 1 o'clock. He said, this was most strange, for through the years I slept like a rock, and no disturbance would wake me. From that hour, I was taken up into divine fellowship for about four hours. He had a season of unusual encounter that he had never experienced before after 10 years of faithful prayer. Now, I don't know what the de dedication is that God is inviting you to. It may be similar to Evan Roberts. It may be entirely different, okay? But so often we are filling bowls in heaven without ever seeing any manifestation in the earth, right? And I'm sure that is true of people who are in this room. You are giving faithfully, but you're not yet seeing the financial breakthrough, right? You're sowing in evangelism, but you're not yet seeing souls saved. You're doing whatever faithful thing God has called you to do, and you're doing it with all of your heart, but you're not seeing the breakthrough. But eventually, when that bowl is full, at God's appointed time, it will tip, and you will begin to see the manifestation of where you've deposited. And it will be because you were faithful to make those deposits, but it will also be because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Something happened to my notes here. One second. <laughs> there we go. So would you like to hear the story of the very first? So Evan Roberts had a powerful personal experience. Would you like to hear the story of how the corporate encounter began in the Welsh Revival? So here's his personal account. On the way to the 9 o'clock meeting, Reverend Seth Joshua remarked, we're going to have a wonderful meeting today. To this I replied, I feel myself almost bursting. The meeting having been open was handed over to the Spirit. I was conscious that I would have to pray. As one and the other prayed, I would put the question to the Spirit, shall I pray now? Wait a while, the Holy Spirit said. When others prayed, I felt a living force come into my bosom. It held my breath. My legs shivered with every prayer I asked, shall I now? The living force grew and grew, and I was almost bursting. Instantly, someone ended his prayer, my bosom boiling. I would have burst if I had not prayed. What boiled in me was the verse, God commending his love. I fell on my knees with my arms over the seat in front of me, and in tears and perspiration, I flowed freely. So he's just, he falls onto the seat in front of him in prayer, sweating, weeping, and he begins to intercede. 
I thought my blood was gushing forth. It said, Miss Davies, Mona, Nuquay came and wiped my face. And on my right was Mag Phillips. These are all uh, women that traveled with him during the Welsh Revival. And on my left, Maud Davies. For about two minutes, it was fearful. I cried, bend me, bend me, bend us. Oh, oh, oh. And Miss Davies said, what a wonderful grace. What bent me was God commending his love. And I did not see anything in it, in me, to be worth commending. Commending means imparting, right? It's a synonym for imparting. So God was pouring out his love on Evan Roberts, and Evan Roberts felt entirely unworthy of it. After I was bent, a wave of peace came over me. The audience sang, I hear thy welcome voice. And as they sang, I thought of the bending of Judgment Day, and I was filled with compassion for those who would be bent on that day, and I wept. Henceforth, the salvation of souls became the burden of my heart. From that time on, I was on fire with a desire to go through all whales. And if it was possible, I was willing to pay God for allowing me to go. Many times there are ministers that's like they'll only go where, where they're paid to go, right? Evan Roberts says, I, I was willing to pay God to let, me, <laughs> to let me go because I was so filled with the love of God for, for lost souls. He said, a plan was agreed on. Eight of us were to go through Wales, and I was to pay all. And he ends up actually doing it, pay all the expenses. So he actually uses his money in order to sponsor the tour, him and all of his friends, because of this encounter that he had had with the power of God. And the fruit is, in one year, 100,000 souls were saved because of the unusual dedication of Evan Roberts. During those meetings... Evan Roberts gave four requirements that were later to be used throughout the coming revival and really revivals ever since. People speak of Evan Roberts' four rules. That we had to have confession of all known sin, repentance and restitution, full obedience and surrender to the Holy Spirit. They called it prompt obedience to the Holy Spirit and the public confession of Christ. And those four principles um, have been powerfully used in revivals ever since. The confession of all known sin repentance and restitution so it's not just enough to say i repent of this sin i repent of that sin but to actually go and make the wrong thing right and then obedience going forward full surrender to christ and the public declaration of christ especially to those who were uh, committing their lives to him for the first time he said the spirit began to be poured out there was weeping shouting crying joy and brokenness some would shout no more lord jesus or i'll die this was the beginning of the Welsh revivals. The meeting moved wherever Evan felt led to go. Those traveling with him were predominantly young women. And uh, often the meetings began with intense intercession, urging surrender to God and the giving of testimony. Evan would often be seen on his knees pleading for God's mercy with tears. The crowds would come and be moved upon by wave after wave of God's presence. Spontaneous prayer, confession, testimony, and song erupted in all the meetings. Evan or his helpers would approach those in spiritual distress and urge them to surrender to Christ. No musical instruments were played because they didn't have any. And often there would be no preaching, yet the crowds continued to come and thousands professed conversion. We don't, I, I love the modern worship movement and the gift that high-end production has given us to be able to have just the best quality Christian experiences, right? But it's not, a, you know, if you have this manifest spirit in the presence of God, you don't need instruments, <laughs> You don't need fog machines. You don't need lights. You don't need, you don't need, I would rather, the ideal is that we would have both, of course. We would have excellence in, in everything that we do and that we would have the anointing of the Spirit of God. But if, if we must choose, church, 
what we give our time to, I would rather have a praying church, right, than a performing church. The meetings often went on until early hours in the morning. Evan and his team would go to sleep for two or three hours, and they'd be back. They would go, and they would preach open air at the entrance to the coal pits, inviting people to come, um, those who were coming off night duty to come to the chapel meetings. They were consumed. So now I want us to go to a place in Scripture. Just turn with me to Acts 19. And I want us to consider the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. Because I think you see a lot of the same unusual dedication uh, that resembles the dedication of people like Charles Finney and Evan Roberts in the life of Paul. So I just want to tell you about this amazing move of God in Ephesus and then we'll look at the secret life of Paul or the, the life of Paul before the move of God's spirit and just see the kind of dedication and commitment that was necessary to produce this unusual manifestation. Acts 19.5, when they'd heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied. And these are about 12 men in all. So those 12 men went on to be the foundation of the church in Ephesus. The gospels proclaimed throughout the region was confirmed with, quote, unusual miracles, Acts 19.10. All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. Handkerchiefs and aprons, this is uh, Acts 19.11 and 12 were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. Many experienced the fear of God and conviction. Those involved in occult practices turned away wholeheartedly. Verse 20 says, The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The actual economics related to idol worship were disrupted because so many turned to the Lord. The silversmiths who created the idols um, in Acts 19 Demetrius, the idol maker, this is verse 25. Men, you know that we have our prosperity by the trade of idol making. However, you hear and note that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned many people saying that they are no gods which are made with hands. In Acts 19, uh, verse 17, a few verses before, fear falls on the whole multitude in Ephesus and says the name of the Lord Jesus is magnified because Paul is able... the demons are, are uh, the sons of Sceva, these uh, Jewish mysticists that were trying to do, uh, uh, trying to use occult practices to drive out demons. They get beat up by this demon-possessed guy, and, and the demons say, Paul we know, and Jesus we know, but who are you? And because of the testimony of the, these kind of, uh, these false exorcists, fear comes on all those, and Jesus is magnified, and those who practice the occult they bring their books together and they burn them in the sight of them all and they count up the value and total 50,000 pieces of silver. So people were not only confessing their sin but wholeheartedly repenting and even the economics of the idol trade were being disrupted. So we see in Ephesus this unusual regional outbreak of the Spirit of God. It says unusual miracles. Um, it in the Welsh Revival, there's this f funny story that so many coal miners got saved, they start, stopped using cuss language. And so the ponies that were the pit ponies that were used to carry the coal had to be retrained because the language, the, the language of the foul-mouthed coal workers were so radically changed, right? 
And so you see the impact of the revival on culture and society and on the everyday living of people and their jobs. We see the same thing in the book of Ephesus, right? People that had formerly made a, a, a work through occult practices or through idolatry, they were forsaken or their revenue streams were drying up because the revival didn't just stay inside the church, right? It was actually permeating culture. What would it be like if there was a dwelling place for God in this city that touched all seven cities of the United Arab Emirates? What would it be like, right, if there was such a move of God's power that the economics of this city, the tourism of this city, both were positively impacted by people coming here to experience God's power and presence and also negatively impacted because people no longer wanted the illicit uh, the illicit or ungodly things um, that are being offered. That's the kind of the move of God's spirit that I believe he wants. So let's fast forward a little bit. In Acts 20, Paul's passing through Ephesus. He's going to these same 12 that he baptized originally, and they've seen a mighty work of God. And he's recounting to them the things that he did that were in their midst. And it gives us incredible insight into the unusual dedication that resulted in God dwelling in that city in that way. And uh, without reading the whole passage, I just want to highlight some of the portions. So if you flip forward to Acts 20, Paul says, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. He said, Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. I kept nothing back, was helpful. I proclaimed it to you and taught it publicly from house to house. Testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus. And see now, I go bound in spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen except the Holy Spirit testifies, saying that chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to me. Verse 31, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Verse 33, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and all those who are with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this, you must support the weak. And remember of our words of our Lord Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. See, Paul's dedication was characterized by his first willingness to suffer persecution, even unto death. His decision to persevere, even in the face of of the Spirit's assurance, this is the Spirit reminds me that chains and imprisonment awake me. His deep concern and pain over the danger of heresy. He said, I wept night and day pleading with you to avoid wolves. He said he provided for the work of the ministry through his own physical labor. Paul's ministry of revival and emphasis was glorious but labor intensive and demanded a heart of humility. Suffering of persecution, anguish in teaching, and prayer over those he loved. He preached the gospel house to house, and he worked a hard manual job to provide for himself and his companions. Beloved, we all want the glory of the Ephesus revival, don't we? We want the occultists to put their books in the streets and burn them. We want the idol workers out of business, right? But are we willing to do the hard work of preaching the gospel house to house with tears to work to support ourselves in the midst of preaching the gospel, the labor that God's called us to. Oh, I'm so convicted. I want God's glory, but I'm like, Lord, I'll just, I'll just pass on the dedication that's required to get me there. There's a famous revivalist named 
um, Leonard Ravenhill. Perhaps some of you have heard that name before. He's written many books, and I, I had the honor to get to uh, sit with his son and have lunch with his son many years ago. It's in my early 20s. And his son said to me, you know, many times people would come from a local seminary to the small town that they lived in in Texas. He said people would come to my father and, and they would uh, ask him for his mantle. They would say, could we have your mantle of revival? And he, he would always tell them, um, if you want my mantle, you have to take my sackcloth and ashes as well. Because you don't get, you don't get the mantle of revival without the brokenness and poverty of spirit in the place of prayer. I'll highlight the phrases again. With many tears and trials, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Night and day with tears, I provided my necessities for those who are with me. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul's summarizing his ministry. He says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prison more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, perils in water, perils in the rob- in robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and in fastings often, in cold and nakedness besides other things what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul had an unusual dedication and that dedication produced a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Turn with me. We'll just look at one last place. Psalm 132. And this is what I want to leave the house of prayer here in Dubai with. David actually makes a vow of dedication to the Lord in Psalm 132. I'll wait till you guys turn there. And then we'll take a moment and pray together. Psalm 132, verse 2. He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will go into the chamber of my house or go to, uh, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David made a vow and his vow was, Lord, I'll live in extravagant commitment to you. I vow to the Lord, I won't go to the chamber of my house. I'm not going to my bedroom where I'm going to be comfortable, to the comfort of my bed. I'm not going to give sleep to my eyes. In verse 5, he gives the goal, the focal point, until there's a dwelling place for God in my city. And David obviously isn't saying, I'm never going to sleep again. He's saying, I won't live in business as usual. I won't just build my own house and attend to my own ministry and to my own business. Yes, I'll be responsible, but I'm going to be gripped with something bigger than that, something that demands my commitment beyond my own personal needs and comforts and finances of my household. He describes the vision that possessed him above his own comfort. I want to see a dwelling place for God in my city. What is a dwelling place? It's a place on earth where God's manifest presence is being released in an unusual way, like in Ephesus, like in the Welsh Revival, like in the mill where Evan Roberts stopped to gaze at those girls. A dwelling place for God speaks of a people who are living in unity with the Holy Spirit. It could be even in some cases large numbers of people 
and the Spirit is releasing an unusual measure of His power and conviction. And people are living awestruck with God. The atmosphere is filled with the spirit of revival. When God comes and dwells in a city, the people are living in the fear of the Lord. But they're not just awestruck. They're filled with love and affection. They tremble before his majesty, and they love him dearly. The first commandment is in first place in their life. But more than that, they're affectionate, but they're also obedient. And they live in humility and in unity with God. And the very presence of God is in a geographic region, and the word of God goes forth and fills that region. See, I love what happened in Ephesus, but what's powerful is it says because of what happened in Ephesus, the whole region heard the word of God. Oh, that it would be said because of what happened among a small group of people in Dubai that the city would be shaken and the region would hear the word of God. But you won't have an unusual manifestation of God's presence in this place unless there's a company of people that are willing to live an unusual dedication unto that dwelling. People that are willing to take the same vow that David did. I'm not going to give rest to my eyes. I'm not going to give sleep to my head. I'm not going to go to my comforts and to what's comfortable to me and live in my own. You know, you know how easy it is. To say, okay, I'm going to just, I'm going to put my favorite CD on. I'm going to get my really nice smelling candles. I'm going to go and just get the lighting just right in my room. And I'm going to go into that. And we should have a secret place with God, right? But it's a lot of times much easier to set the conditions of prayer on your own. As opposed to go to the corporate gathering where maybe the person that's singing is off key. Maybe that person that annoys you or offended you last time is sitting two rows behind you. Right? But when we commit to whatever level of, of discomfort is involved in our dedication, we're saying to God, God, my dedication to you, my, my, my coming to you, like, like uh, Evan Roberts said, you know, when he saw the boys out on the waves playing in the boats, I said, no, I'm going to keep my dedication to the Lord. We'll all have those little testings in our heart, and they feel so real and so challenging in the moment, don't they? But if we could only see what our obedience to God in those moments would produce when we say no to pornography or when we say no to spending money on things that are frivolous or when we say no to that thing that is tempting or that thing where we know we haven't been as dedicated as we should be. We haven't been as dedicated to preaching the gospel or to the place of prayer, to the word of God. And we say, God, whatever obedience is required of me, I'm giving my heart fully to it. And in that dedication is the seeds of revival. In that dedication is the seed of the breakthrough. And if people will live as a company, God will come and dwell and rest on their midst. How do I know this? Because I've tasted it in our own community. And it's what God wants to produce here. Right? But a half-hearted people will see half-hearted results. Okay? That's just true. If you want to see an unusual manifestation, live in unusual dedication. If you live in unusual dedication, it'll still only ever be God's grace that got you there. You'll never earn it through that unusual dedication, right? We don't earn it. We position ourselves to receive it. So for those who are here who say David's vow of one, Psalm 132, I'm not committing to close this so I don't knock it over. David's vow of unusual dedication. I'm so hungry for the kind of move that Charles Finney described and Evan Roberts described and 
Paul experienced in the book of Ephesus. I'm so desperately hungry to see God move in that way. I I will take whatever discomfort is necessary to see the Spirit of God move, not just in my community, but in my life. And you'd say today, I want to take that vow of unusual dedication. I want to live an unusually dedicated life unto a dwelling place of God in my city, unto a dwelling place for God in the